served our country in military service, past or present. If you uh, have, would you stand up? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your service, past and present. Thank you for your service. God has given us so many great things to enjoy, and I admit I take them for granted all the time, but uh, when you're serving our country uh, in that fashion, you, uh, you're allowing people like me to take it for granted, and I shouldn't, but uh, just thank you for your service. Um, one other thing I've been asked to mention, this is a whole different thing. You know, this summer as you come in, uh, we're going to need all the seating we can get. This is Memorial Day weekend. This is notoriously one of the lowest attendance Sundays uh, of, the, uh, of the summer, actually. Uh, you can see that it's fairly full. So when you come in, I'm going I'm to pick out Allison Dale right there in the middle. Allison came in real early, and she came in, and she came halfway forward. You know, we have some empty seats up here. Uh, I want all you people who are sitting in the first, you know, second, third, and fourth row to move forward next Sunday and uh, also move into the middle. Allison gets the gold star. Jesus is especially pleased with Allison. <laughs> and I know this is going against the grain because uh, we don't want to do this. There's one more thing we don't want to do, parking. Our biggest issue, I don't think is going to be in here because we can put more seats in here. Our biggest issue is going to be parking. So if you're a regular attender at Deer Creek, if you would park on the street and go to the extra trouble, and it is extra trouble, to walk in and, you know, uh, to walk into the building, we would appreciate that. It'll let guests and people that are just kind of checking uh, us or the place out, uh, it'll give them an opportunity to find a parking space. Would some of you do that? Because I know not all of you are going to. <laughs> some of you will? <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, uh, it's so interesting what we were just singing. That's a new song that Jake was introducing to us, and we're making a declaration that God is good. Amen. And he's never going to let us down. And wouldn't it be great if we believed that? Because much of the time we don't, if we're honest. So we're going to get into that matter this morning. Pray with me. Father God. We are delighted that you meet us here in this place. We're delighted that we get to join hands, so to speak, with others and sing your praises because God, that galvanizes our heart to live out of the truths we know to be true, but God, we confess that often we don't live that way. We live as if you're not good or we live as if you might let us down. We know better, Father, but there's something in us that's broken that would prevent us from always believing that and always living that way. Forgive us. God, we pray that you would speak to us right now this morning <clears throat> as only you can. Help us to be good listeners to your spirit and to your word. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, who is good. Amen. So you have two people. Both claim that they are followers of Jesus. Uh, one, one person is humble and loving and truthful and kind-hearted towards others and very forgiving. And quite honestly, everybody just loves being around this person, just loves being around them. The other guy, quite frankly, is selfish and angry and judgmental and proud and gossips and frankly, not pleasant at all 
to be around. Both, however, claim to be followers of Jesus. Hmm. Here's the question. Do these two people share the same faith? Do they really believe the same things? And if they do, <laughs> why are they so different? Okay. Why doesn't this faith that they both claim to possess work in the same way and to the same degree, producing the same fruits of the spirit in these two people? Good question. Let's dive into that. There's a, a Roman Catholic philosopher and writer named uh, Michael Novak. And he talks about three different kinds of convictions that we have. Three different kinds of convictions. He says, we all have public convictions. And then we have some private convictions. And then we have some, what he calls core convictions. Public convictions are things that I want other people to think I believe, okay? Uh, even though I may not really believe them. Uh, for example, if a woman asks, does this dress make my hips look too large? You know, I would say, I didn't even know you had hips until you asked that question. <laughs> These are the statements, the kinds of statements that we make for public consumption, uh, for PR purposes, if you will, regardless whether I really believe them. A biblical example of this, uh, as Jesus was born, you remember King Herod said to the wise men, he said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go too and worship him. Was that true? No, not at all. It was for public consumption in that case. And it's hard for us to believe that in our day, uh, there would be such a thing as a, as a politician who would bend the truth like that just for public consumption. Am I right? But that happened back then. Public conviction. Uh, private convictions. That's the second category he mentions. Private convictions, they're a little different. These are the things that I sincerely think I believe. Uh, but it turns out when push comes to shove, maybe I don't believe them as deeply or as much as I think I do. For example, the night before Jesus died, he predicted uh, in the context there with the disciples that Peter was going to deny him. And you remember what Peter says, no, Lord, no, no way. That is not going to happen. He says, I will not fall away. Even if I have to die with you, they might fall away, the other disciples, but not me, Lord, I am with you. And when Peter said these words, I think he was being very sincere. I don't think he was lying in any way, shape or form. But were those convictions true? Were those his his real beliefs. The very next day when the heat was on and he was actually confronted with the fact that he might suffer if in fact he identified himself as a follower of Jesus, turns out Peter felt differently. He denied, as you know, Jesus three times. So what he thought were his convictions turned out not to be so. And sometimes we think we have convictions, but it turns out we don't. It turns out that they don't run as deep as we think. When our circumstances change, we find ourselves thinking differently. That's what happened to Peter. And that leads to the third type of conviction. And these are the convictions that really matter to us. Uh, these are what Novak calls core convictions, and they are revealed by our daily actions, by what, in fact, we actually do, okay? Uh, these are what might be called also a person's mental map. Novak uses that language, mental map. This is the way we really think. This is 
the values, the set of values that we really hold dear and true. These are the things that determine our choices when push comes to shove, right? This is the way we think life really works, regardless of what we might say publicly or even think privately. This is the way we think life really works. An example of this, I, like many of you, believe in gravity. You believe in gravity? Yeah, you probably don't think about this much. It's just part of my mental map, right? Uh, so I don't have to work hard to behave in a way that is congruent with this belief that I have in gravity. I don't have to say, you know, today I'm going to demonstrate my belief in gravity. I don't have to work hard to keep from jumping out of 10-story buildings or things like that. Gravity is part of my mental map. It is what I think about the way things really are. And therefore, my actions are always congruent with my belief about gravity. And I assume you're the same. So I have these three kinds of convictions that we've talked about. What I say I believe, what I think I believe, and then what I really believe by showing uh, those beliefs in my actions. Turns out that I am not even the best judge sometimes of what I actually believe. The best indicator of my true beliefs are, in fact, my actions. They always flow out of my mental map about the way things really are. What I say I believe might be bogus. I might be lying. What I think I believe, well, I might discover that I'm a little fickle with those things I think I believe, but I never violate my idea about the way things really are. That's the mental map. And we all live at the mercy of our ideas about the way we think things really are. And this starts to get at one of the underlying reasons for the differences between those two people that we started off talking about. Uh, leading up to this week, I was thinking about this. A couple of weeks ago, we publicly together stood up and we declared uh, the Apostles' Creed together. Um, what if... What if this morning, instead of reciting the creed, we were able to recite what we really believe? What if that were up on the screen and we just kind of read it out loud? You know, these are our core convictions. Would that creed sound like the Apostles' Creed? Do you think that uh, the two would, you know, be kind of exactly the same? For many of us, I'm guessing that would not be the case. I have to be honest with you. There are many times in my life where I know that would not be the case. For many of us, it might sound like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I mean, some of the time, you know. But there are many times when he seems pretty far away and somehow irrelevant to what I'm right now going through. Times, for example, when I need to take things into my own hands and just stretch or bend the truth. Times when I need to think of me first, not somebody else. Times when I need to worry because worrying is going to change something. Times when I don't really want to be bothered with other people and their needs or their issues. At times like that, I believe it's okay to just, you know, live like I am the only God around. I'm at the center of it all. Others need to make me happy. They need to be sensitive to my cares and concerns and needs. Let's keep going. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Well, you know, by Lord, I mean that some of the time I will take seriously what he says. But I'll be the judge of when that's necessary or not. For example, Jesus makes some strange demands on my time and money, and occasionally I might listen, I might obey, but you know, there are times when that just hurts too much, I'm not gonna do it, just not gonna do it. 
Let's keep going. Who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Yeah. Thank God for this. Really, I mean it. Because otherwise I would die and go to that place mentioned. Hell, I don't want to go there. Who wants to go there? So yes, I accept that part. And I believe I'll go to heaven when I die. Thank you very much, Jesus. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. But apparently uh, pays very little attention to what's going on in my life. Because when I ask him to change this or change that or give me this or give me that, he doesn't usually do it. What's with that? I don't get that. So, you know, I just have to look out for myself a good bit of the time. Uh, and wonder why he doesn't pay closer attention. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Yeah, that's a little scary. Not sure exactly what that means, but I'm glad I have fire insurance. I put my faith in him, so I'm going to heaven, not hell. Glad of that. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Yeah, I do. I think, I mean, I don't see him, but I mean, I know he's here somewhere. But I don't see many miracles happening in my life. Um, and the Holy Catholic Church. Yep, not even sure what that means, so I'll just go right on. And the communion of saints. Well, you know, at least I believe in having community with others who see things my way. Not too sure about people who don't see things my way. Not too sure I even want them here. But come on, I can't take things either that Jesus taught, like forgive those who trespass against you. You can only take that so far, friends. You can't take that too seriously. That becomes very impractical and very inconvenient. The forgiveness of sins, yep, there it is again. Thank you, Jesus, for making up my shortfall. I know I get some things wrong occasionally. It's good to be on your team. I'm looking forward to the resurrection of the body. Amen, yep, I buy that. And you get the idea. And I'm ashamed to say that some of that stuff I just said at times, that's what's inside me. That's what wells up in this the broken, sinful part of me. And you can see what I believe by the way I live. The writers of scripture have a word that uh, describes this. That's a word we don't use today. It's uh, the word depravity. <laughs> We're depraved. This word gets uh, to this idea of sin that works inside us all the time. It twists our mental map, our perspective of the way things really are so that my ideas are aligned. Uh, my ideas about people or privilege or power or money or whatever are, are misaligned with the way things really are. I have perceptions that don't match reality, not God's reality. And this is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 1. We read this a couple weeks ago. He talks about the, the people whose thinking has become futile and their foolish hearts were darkened, he says. Our hearts are actually darkened so that we don't see things the way they really are. He says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's what depravity is all about. A mind that doesn't see things the way they really are. A mind that doesn't embrace truth for what it really is. And then one day, Jesus shows up in this population of depraved people. What kind of convictions do you think Jesus is most interested in changing? It would be our core convictions. Absolutely, our core convictions. He's interested in changing people's mental maps, their thoughts about the way things really are. He wants to bring our core convictions into alignment with the reality of God's kingdom so that our actions align with our beliefs, you see. 
And Jesus' followers get this. They understand that this is what Jesus is always up to in our lives. The faith of a real Christ follower is both about life-saving, going to heaven and so, but also about behavior changing. It's a life-saving, behavior-changing faith. There's really no other kind. James said this, what good is it, my brothers, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Show me your faith uh, without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. This is interesting because again, I, I always am intrigued by this little book of James because James is who? It's Jesus' brother. <laughs> I mean, James watched Jesus grow up and James would write this. You, you know, one of the reasons he writes it is James, as much as anybody ever could, knows that Jesus never said something that he didn't also do that he didn't live out. Christians talk sometimes about saving faith. Uh, some say that saving faith is believing the minimal amount of stuff needed to get you into heaven when you die. You know, that's saving faith. Well, the problem with that kind of thinking is where in the New Testament does Jesus ever talk about some minimal kind of faith or saving faith? The fact is he doesn't. There's no such thing. Saving faith in the New Testament is the, it's the new mental map that is both given to us and grown inside of every true Jesus follower. This new mental map is part of what we get and part of what's worked into the man, the woman, the child who follows Jesus. With this new mental map, we see ourselves differently. We don't have any issue with being described as depraved. You know, it's easy for spouses to describe their spouse as a depraved person. But the reality is of someone who follows Jesus, we know something, maybe not nearly enough, but we know something about our own depravity. With a new mental map, we see God differently. God is holy. God is just. God is loving. God is forgiving. He's a heavenly father. We see the world differently. History has a purpose. It's going somewhere. It matters what people do. Uh, we see our purpose, uh, personally, our purpose differently. We become kingdom citizens. We become representatives of Jesus. We have a redemptive purpose in the work that we do. We see our future differently. It's full of hope. And we, uh, we see stuff differently. <laughs> our stuff is a gift, a gift to meet our needs, but also to meet the needs of others. And so we are now living in the reality of Jesus' kingdom, and it changes our mental map. You see, the first disciples who followed Jesus, they watched him live, and then they would hear him teach, and these things matched. There was perfect consistency between what Jesus said and what Jesus thought and what Jesus did. Unlike anybody else they had ever met, Jesus believed, you see, that there was a, a heavenly father who was always present with him, who always loved him, who was in control ultimately of everything. And Jesus believed that in the way that uh, he believed that in the way that I or you believe in gravity, you see. That was just his mental map. And consequently, Jesus obeyed his heavenly father at all times. But that obedience didn't look to be something heroic in Jesus, you see. It just made perfect sense to him because of what he knew to be true about his God, his heavenly father. It's like my obedience to the law of gravity doesn't look heroic to me. 
You know, I don't, I don't think of myself, wow, look at me. Uh, look how great I am for obeying the laws of gravity. It just makes perfect sense to me. It's the only way to live. And that's the way obeying God and living in the reality of the presence of God looked to Jesus. It was the only right way to live. And so the disciples looked at Jesus and they thought, you know what? That's the way. Right there, the way he lives, that's the way to live. I wish I could live like that. I, I wish I had his joy. I wish I had his sense of significance, his sense of peace, his sense of goodness, his boldness. I wish I could live like that. And when they tried doing the things that Jesus taught, what they found is that his teachings actually made sense. They actually worked. Forgiveness was better than seeking vengeance, they found. Giving was better than living greedily or than always getting. Loving your enemies was more powerful, more profound in its impact than hating them. What Jesus said and did actually works. That's what they found out. There is a Quaker theologian. He was actually once upon a time chaplain to Harvard and to Stanford students, if you can imagine. They had, they had chaplains at this time. But uh, Elton Trueblood, he made this statement. He said, the deepest conviction of the Christian is that Christ was not wrong about anything. Think about that. Jesus isn't wrong about forgiving your enemies. Jesus is not wrong about loving God with all your heart. Jesus is not wrong about blessing those who curse you. He is not wrong about choosing to live generously. He is not wrong about caring for the poor. He is not wrong about finding your life literally by losing it, by laying it down. Elton Trueblood, the deepest conviction of the Christian is that Christ was not wrong about anything. That's really the goal of discipleship, you understand to constantly be growing in that conviction. Jesus is not wrong about anything. Why don't you say that with me? Jesus is not wrong about anything. You see, that's the truth. So what Jesus says about my anger or my selfishness, my relationships, my spouse, my money, my attitudes is exactly right. And when I believe that, well, then my mental map begins to look like Jesus' mental map. And I start to live differently and act differently and prioritize my time, even my values differently. Because you see, we all live at the mercy of our ideas about the way things really are. But here's what happens in probably too many churches. We try to get people to to pray a prayer or to, or to trust in Jesus uh, and that so that they can go to heaven, you know, as if it's possible to uh, pray a prayer that's going to get you to heaven without at the same time learning to trust him every day to get you to work. You know, that it, it, those are not two separate things. And so consequently, we, we set up this fake Christian subculture of people who say they believe in Jesus. They may even think that they believe in Jesus, but the reality is their lives are nothing like Jesus' life. Their mental map's totally different from his. In fact, their actions would indicate that they do not share Jesus' ideas by things that we see them do. 
They do not think that Jesus describes the way things really are or the way things really work. And therefore, they're not able to live out their lives the way Jesus would live their lives if he were living in their place. Now, the question is, and I suspect you're with me on this, many of you, how does our mental map get changed to look more like Jesus? I mean, that's what we want, right? How do we get that kind of faith? How do we get what the scriptures or what the Bible would call the mind of Christ? How do we get that in us? This is vitally important for anybody wanting to follow Jesus. And the fact is, we can't do this by ourselves. It's impossible. Changing our mental map is a, It's a cooperative process for us, one that God starts, one that he constantly empowers, one that we cooperate with. Getting uh, the mind of Jesus in us involves, I would submit, at least two things, and you can probably think of some others that, and you know, but I'm preaching, you're not, so I can only think of two, (laughs) two at least. It involves at least these two things. It involves learning and it involves doing. First, we have to learn what it is that Jesus taught. Uh, What does he say about literally anything, everything? We have to learn what Jesus' ideas are about the the way that life really works. Uh, And there's just no way around this. You understand, one of the reasons we do this every week and I've joked around with this before. Some of you are unaware that we meet here every week, but one of the reasons we do this is because we get reminded of what Jesus taught. We get reminded of how good he is. We get reminded when we gather like this that he is never going to let us down. We look at scripture, we study it, we remember it, we try to embrace it and believe it and base our lives upon it. Worship here is one of the key things we do. It's called reaching up. Something else we do, reaching in. We connect with other Christians because you know what? Other Christians, they go through tough times and we get to remind them that he's never gonna let you down. Don't let go, hang on, keep trusting. And then they turn around and they do that same courtesy. They administer that same grace to us when we need to hear that message. It's a mutual back and forth and we learn together and we grow together. So reaching up, reaching in, and then reaching out. You know, loving others with what we know to be true about Jesus. It's just part of what Christians are supposed to do. It's it's the way Jesus lived his life, I would say. Now, here's the thing. We don't just learn. We also have to do. This is the dynamic of being a disciple. Uh, George MacDonald, many of you have heard of him before. He's a Scottish author and poet and a pastor of the 1800s. He said this. He said, the most important question you can ask if you want to know whether or not you are a disciple of Jesus is, have I done one single thing today simply because Jesus said to do it? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting observation, I think. Because the idea here is that we're going to run into all kinds of things daily in our lives that we don't necessarily want to do. I don't necessarily want to love my enemies. I don't necessarily want to help the lady who's juggling a couple kids and a bag of groceries that she wants to get up there and pay for, and maybe I should let her in front of me. Are you kidding? (laughs) I've actually had that thought before in lines that somebody looked like they needed to get out or get through before. I have sometimes let them cut in line, and I've sometimes thought I was just too important to let that happen. It wasn't Jesus' mental map, was it? You know, um, learning things and not doing them 
probably does more harm in us than good. That's why gatherings like this can be dangerous if all you're ever doing is learning stuff, but you never do it. See, for my mental map to change, I will have to learn to trust Jesus enough to actually do something that he tells me to do. Forgive this person, serve this person, humble myself, give, whatever it is, whatever he tells you to do. If you go down that path enough of hearing him say something and not doing it, what you're slowly doing is inoculating yourself to Jesus. And let me just say, God forbid, because he's our only hope of change, of life, of truth, of being on the path that's called the way. You see, if I get used to hearing him say one thing and then I go and do another, wow, that's not discipleship. That's a dangerous way to live and a dangerous place to be. So what do I do if I really want to follow Jesus? Well, and not have just public convictions about him. If I really want the mind of Christ to be worked into my heart into my soul, what do I do? Well, again, I do what other disciples have done since the very, very beginning. Number one, they get clear about what it is he's saying to them. They study his word. They develop habits that that frequently expose them to the teachings of Jesus, to the teachings of the disciples, to scripture itself. And they let those things take root in their lives, but they don't just study. They don't just learn. After they learn, they act. You know, even... uh, They act even if every cell of their body is screaming out with apprehension and fear. And a lot of times Jesus will call us into those waters. He said to Peter, you remember there on the uh, the Sea of Galilee, the waves were raging and storming and Jesus came walking to the disciples in the evening and and, uh, in the middle of the night and and they thought he was a ghost. And Jesus says, don't worry, it's me. I'm not a ghost. And, And Peter says, well, if you're not a ghost, then, you know, call me. Can I come walk on the water? And he says, come. And Peter does, you know, it's a pretty amazing story. He took action. He listened. This is what disciples, that's a of a disciple, even though there could be fear, even though there could be apprehension, we learn, we listen, and then we act. I mean, think about this. This is exactly what Jesus himself did. He modeled this to us perfectly. Uh, He knew his heavenly father, of course, perfectly, intimately. And so he trusted his heavenly father completely, enough even to let go of heaven, let go of all the prerogatives he had there, let go of his glory, let go of his power. He's come and he's born here on earth in a stable to parents of rather uh, modest means. He becomes a blue-collar worker. He's a carpenter, and, and he becomes later an itinerant rabbi. He marches steadily toward his own betrayal, his own beating, his own death in his process of following his heavenly father. He's clear about what the father uh, wants him to do. He's clear about why he has come, and so he acts, and he obeys the father. Even as he's wrestling with this, you know the story, There in the garden on the night before he is crucified, he has misgivings about this. Father, if there's any way to take this cup from me, would you do that? And and the father makes it clear there's no other way, son. Okay. He says, into your hands I commend my spirit, even though it costs me my life. When he did that, he was not only saving us, He was also teaching us something about trust. Can God be trusted? 
Even if he kills you on a cross, can God be trusted? I would submit to you that the whole issue at question in that question is this thing called the dance of discipleship. We're always learning whether or not God can be trusted. And if it feels like, looks like, it means my death. Can he be trusted? You know, God comes to people. He comes to you. He comes to me and he challenges us all the time in all the different circumstances of our lives. He challenges us to trust him. He came to Abraham and he said, leave everything familiar to you, Abe. Leave your family, leave your home, leave this culture, go where I tell you to go. Will you do that? Will you trust me? And Abraham acted and he did trust. He obeyed. There was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus one day. We read about it in Mark 10. And I love how Mark shapes this story as he tells it to us. He says, Jesus loved him. That's the quote. Jesus loved him. And then Jesus says some of the hardest words uh, imaginable, I think, to someone. Because this, this young man, this young ruler, wanted to know what he needed to do in order to receive eternal life. And Jesus says, go sell everything you have. <laughs> you understand his idol, his God was money. That to him meant security. That to him meant power. It meant prestige. It meant all kinds of things to him, without a doubt. He says, go and sell everything you have. Give to the poor, he says, and then come follow me. Now stop and think for a minute. Is being a personal follower, a disciple of Jesus, is that not the best offer ever made to a human being? Come follow me, Jesus says. And this... uh, This rich young ruler acted too, but apparently not in obedience. That did not fit his mental map. Jesus spoke to a woman who was caught in adultery. He says says to her, uh, you know, she's put on trial there publicly and people want to see if Jesus will condemn her or not. And he says to her, I forgive you. And then he says, go and sin no more. What he's saying is, you know, let go of that relationship that's, that's killing you and not honoring God, and I I forgive you, but go and sin no more. And this happens over and over and over and over. God asks us to look at life from a different perspective, you see. And usually that means letting go of things that we trust in to deliver us, things other than God, things we think we've got to have for life to be happy or meaningful or satisfying or purposeful in order for people to recognize just what kind of person slash God I am. You know, let go of relationships that might dishonor him or attachments to stuff that make me greedy or habits that kill me or grudges that poison me or pride that separates me from loving others and serving others and caring for others. Whatever it is that keeps us from growing, God says, let go of that. Trust me. I love you. And then we have to decide, will I trust? Will I obey? Sometimes when we take action and we obey, it seems like nothing happens. I mean, I admit that. There have been times when I've trusted Jesus, did exactly what I thought he wanted me to do, and I, I saw no you know, immediate apparent like epiphany or the, the skies didn't open up. Or you know, I, I so many times trusted Jesus when I bought lottery tickets and it just hasn't happened. <laughs> no, actually, that's not true. I've never bought a lottery ticket. But if you want to give me one, I would take one anyway. Point is, we, we, we believe, we trust, we follow, and then we don't see sometimes the expected result that we want to see. 
I mean, Abraham stands as the great example of faith in the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, God tells Abraham that he's going to be a father, a, a father of a great nation with innumerable dis, uh, descendants. And, and he's told that he's going to have a son by Sarah. And Abraham believes God. And, and then Abraham has to wait. Does anybody know how long he waits? It's 25. 25 years he waits. Wow. From that first announcement, how, how well does he do at waiting? It's interesting because he's referred to in Scripture in the New Testament as a man of great faith. How does he, how does he do at waiting and trusting and obeying? Not so good, yeah, not so good, yeah. <laughs> Abraham takes his wife, Sarah, one time. They go to Egypt because there's been a, there's been a, a, a drought and there's not sufficient food to feed his, his family and his livestock and things of that nature. And so he migrates to the south. And in so doing, he's really not trusting God at all by that action. And when he gets down there, uh, even more so he's not trusting. He says to Sarah, Sarah, you are a beautiful woman. How old was Sarah when he said that too, by the way? 70. So ladies, you can stay hot right up through 70, 80, 90. It doesn't matter. He says, Sarah, you're a beautiful woman. And when the Pharaoh sees you, he's going to want you for his harem. And he might kill me to get you. So let's just do this thing. You are my half sister, so let's tell a half lie. And let's just tell the Pharaoh you're my sister. That way, if he takes you into his harem, I'll still be okay. Husband of the year, right there. <laughs> yeah, right. So interesting. Do you understand what he's doing? He's betraying the covenant that God has made with him. Abraham, through your wife, Sarah, you're going to have a child. Well, yeah, that's, that's good to know, God, but my life feels a little bit at risk right now. So, Sarah, you go be in the Pharaoh's harem. What happens if Pharaoh and Sarah have sex? Do you believe he said that in church? That whole covenant thing, that whole promise of a seed coming from Sarah who would fulfill the covenant promises of God would be at jeopardy in that. He's not trusting. He's not trusting. He's also not done because he does the same thing again some years later. Exactly the same thing. It saved his neck once. He thinks it'll save his neck again. And of course, as you know, if you know anything about the story of Abraham, he gets pretty desperate about this having an heir thing, right? Because none comes along. And so Sarah says to him, you know what, honey? Here's my handmaid. Why don't you go lay with her and have a child by her? Maybe that's what God means when, when he says we'll have an heir and maybe that's the way to do it. And Abraham prays about this and he says, if you say so, you know. And what do those actions lead to? A ginormous mess. A huge mess. In the family and in the generations, all of them that follow, a huge mess. And years later, God still comes to Abraham again and says, you're going to have a son, Abraham. Does Abraham receive these words with great faith? Well, in Genesis 17, it says, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? That's not great faith, I would say. And just kind of a note here too, you know, we are often very tempted to just think if I, if I could just have a sign, you know, maybe like God coming and talking to me. Yeah. 
just, just one miracle, one supernatural event in my life, uh, you know, the way it happens in Bible times, that kind of thing. Well, then I would be able to trust. I would never, ever doubt again. Yeah, bull. That's not true for Noah. That's not true for Abraham. That's not true for Moses. That wasn't true for David. It wasn't true for Gideon. It didn't turn out to be true for Peter or for any of the apostles who doubted even after the resurrection. Not true. It doesn't matter how God comes to people. It doesn't matter what God does. There was always room for uncertainty and doubt in here. And it's because we're broken. We're depraved, you see. God tells Abraham what he's going to do. And then Abraham has to wait. And he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. And Abraham doesn't wait all that well. But after years and years, God comes through. God is faithful. God answers the prayer, keeps the promise that he made. Sarah finds out one day she's pregnant. Can you imagine that? She is 91 years old. Yeah. And she hadn't believed either. In fact, she laughed at the promises of God too. But sure enough, God is good. She gives the birth to this boy and they name him Isaac. What does that name mean? It means he laughs. That's what that name means. He laughs. They named the boy. He laughs. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And dadgummit, they did. They will laugh because there's a baby being born and Medicare is paying for it. <laughs> is that good? They laugh because when Sarah's going through the grocery store with her shopping cart, she's buying Depends and baby diapers, right? <laughs> And they laugh because the whole family, the entire family is eating Gerber, right? They don't have any teeth. Yeah. They will laugh because they waited so badly all this time. And they misbehaved. And they played games of deception when they should have just been believing in and trusting in God. And they laugh because of how often they doubted that God could or would come through. But God mercifully showed up any way. God is faithful. God is good. He doesn't change ever, not ever. And so a disciple listens and learns and then takes action and obeys and trusts, even if the whole process is messy and imperfect, just the way it was with Abraham and Sarah. And the more we learn to exercise this trust muscle. And you know, I, I don't want to do it. I admit that, God, it's going to be hard for me to do it. You're going to have to help me to do it. But I will believe you and I will take action. I will trust you and do what I think you want me to do. When we keep exercising that muscle, the chief thing that we learn is that God is good. He's always faithful. And uh, he will come through. Now, here's the thing. Uh, God, I'm quite certain, is calling to some of us this morning to listen, to get clear about, really clear about what he's saying to us. And then, uh, in addition, uh, he is calling us to trust him. And that means take some kind of action. What does he want you to do? And, you know, for some here, that might mean believing in him. Maybe you've been living in a place of kind of obstinate unbelief and you know he's calling you just to believe in him and for whatever reason, you've struggled to do that. I would say to you, come to faith, put your faith in him. Start this walk with him. Here's what you're gonna discover if you do. He is good and he is faithful. 
For others, he might be calling you to not stop some behavior that's killing you or destroying a relationship. He could be calling you to break some addiction. You might need help to do that. He's calling you to change some attitude or start honoring him with your resources or end an unhealthy uh, friendship, relationship, what have you, or stop worrying about something that, frankly, you can't fix even if you want to. It be almost anything, any area where God is just saying to you, you need to trust me here. And then the question for you and for me is, will we listen? Will we take action? You see, there is no other way to be a disciple. There's no other way to have Jesus' life. There's no other way to live in Jesus' kingdom than to listen and then take action and obey. There's no other way. And just thinking about something and studying it to death does not change your mental map or mine. Having the mind of Jesus is never just an intellectual deal. Being a disciple requires action. Our core commitments change only when I start with something that Jesus says and something that I think I've come to believe is true, something I'm sure he wants me to do, you know, forgive my spouse, love my neighbor, whatever it is, and then I actually do it. I act on it, even if it's hard. I take action just because Jesus says so. Friends, is there some area in your life where you have been refusing to listen or to trust or to act? This week in wrestling this stuff through, I've got a couple areas in my life where that is true. And I know what God wants me to do. And I don't want to be stuck there any longer. And what I think Jesus is saying to me and saying to you is, Come follow me. Die to the things that would keep you from thriving in my kingdom because that's what he wants for us, is to thrive. If you trust me, you'll find out that you haven't died to anything at all that matters. The way Jesus said it is that by losing your life, you will find it. That's what he said. And living this way, friends... (laughs) It's challenging, it's an adventure, but boy, I'll tell you what, it changes our mental maps. Something deep down inside us will be transformed. Something deep down inside us also, I would say, will be satisfied like never, ever before. Um, I think what I want to do is just this. I'd ask everybody to bow your heads. If God is speaking to you about anything... Um, I would say the way he was speaking to me through this. If there's something he wants you to do, if there's some, something that he's making clear for you and, and you're wanting to make a commitment, you're, you're wanting to say to him, I won't just listen, Jesus, I will do, I will act. I'd ask you to raise your hand, keep it up for a second. Wow, a bunch of us. Jesus, help, help us, help me, help every one of us, God, who's hearing you speak to us and there's something you want us to do. Dear God, help us do it. And thank you. 
I mean, we look at the example of Abraham. God, you never gave up on him, even though he dropped the ball. He, uh, there were so many times when he didn't trust, and yet he learned through all of those situations that you can be trusted, you are faithful, you are merciful. And then, Lord, he found himself one day able to take his son up to the top of a mountain at your request and be prepared to offer him a sacrifice, a burnt offering, but you stepped in and once again were faithful. We see growth in Abraham. God, may that same growth happen in us. For we ask it in the very, very precious and good name of Jesus. Amen. God bless.